Hello and welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM. It's brought to you this week by KiwiCo and Eero. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. This is episode number 100. My name is Jason Snell and I'm joined for the hundredth time by my co-host, Stephen Hackett. Hey, Jason. Hey, let's shake hands across the table hey. because we are together for episode 100. That's great. I feel like we do... Here we are in space. We do a lot of liftoff episodes <laughs> in Airbnbs. Yeah, we do. It's uh, Being a podcaster is doing podcasts at Airbnbs. Maybe it's just that I remember the liftoff ones the most, but I just I feel like we do a lot of these, but here we are together. Yeah, it's great. It's great. And for episode 100, which is also nice. One day we will be in a space hotel doing episode 400, something like that. I'm going to write that down in the spreadsheet. Okay. <laughs> Last episode was our Apollo 10 special. So we yes. have a lot of stuff to catch up on. It's every, true. It's been a month. A lot every, of space news out every there. Every time I open this Google document, there's more in it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Let's start with the SpaceX Starlink project. So this is SpaceX program that eventually they want to have a whole bunch of satellites providing inter- high-speed internet access all over the globe. Right. And you might say to yourself, well, this sounds a lot like Iridium. Didn't people invent uh, internet satellites? Like, well, originally Iridium was going to be uh, self, it was like satellite phone satellites. Right. And then, then it sort of became more internet satellites. Uh, the big difference being that there are going to be, this isn't going to be geosynchronous. They want the, it's, it's going to be low, 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 low Earth orbit, which means they need a lot of them because in low Earth orbit, they don't stay above one position. So they need kind of a grid of them all moving together. Um, and by being in low Earth orbit, they're more efficient. That means you can get faster speeds and lower latency and all of these things. Um, so they did a launch and they launched 60 of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the goal would be for them to launch... Uh, I think hundreds, if not like a thousand more in order to have like essentially complete coverage of Earth by these satellites. Right. So this is sort of phase one testing. They're testing the design and the communication between them. But they've, they're already running into some criticism. And I think it's, it's interesting to explore this. So I think we, we probably saw, most everyone saw a GIF a couple of days after the launch, basically a, a bright line across the sky because these 60 satellites are basically moving in in, in a train together. And uh, over time, that should fade because they're going to move to a higher orbit. But is raised concerns about pollution when it comes to uh, astronomy from surface telescopes. That if you have these really bright objects, these satellites also uh, emit radio frequencies. So it could interfere with not just visible light satellites but or uh, telescopes, but also radio telescopes and other right. things. And uh, astronomers are concerned. Yeah, the IAU uh, released a statement echoing the concerns, calling for regulation of uh, of these kinds of things. And I think that's one of the things that I found fascinating. There was a, a New York Times piece about this that I, I I thought went tried to deal with this in a lot of detail because there's the there there's a bunch of things going on here. You've got the desire by SpaceX to uh, partly to make you know, money by this, but you know, the, the goal here is to create a product that connects people with the internet, including if in far off places. And that's, I think, admirable because getting internet access in a lot of parts of the world and even parts of, you know, the U S is hard because they're not in the more connected parts of, Absolutely. of, of the, our country or around the world. Um, but at the same time, there are the needs of people like astronomers who, if this is done uh, a certain way, their observations are going to be much harder. They're going to have satellites flying in the middle. There's a great picture of a satellite actually in an orbit above the Hubble Space Telescope uh, ruining a shot that went around on Twitter. And, you know, what struck me in the New York Times article is there's nobody in charge of this because it's space and we're sort of in this situation where if people, if Elon Musk wants to put a thousand little shiny satellites in orbit, um, there's not really anybody to stop him. There's no policy where like astronomers could go and petition and like, you know, there's no forms to be filled out on one level. That's kind of great because it allows for a lot of innovation, but on another level, it is fascinating to think of, a you know a lawless location where anything could potentially happen, um, and you know I wonder 
if this sort of thing will lead to um, to more discussion about a more coordinated effort about like how we use space uh, and and Earth orbit and locations in Earth orbit and maybe come up with better guidelines about light pollution um, and noise from these satellites. And it's all just kind of not really been an issue, but is becoming one now. It's super complex, and it's only going to get more complicated as more players enter the field, right? You have SpaceX. Who, if they if Starlink does what they want it to do, it will triple the number of satellites in orbit. I mean, it is a big deal. I think you're I think you're right in thinking that there's got to be something or some uh, organization that comes to the front of this because we could be in a situation where we have uh, closed ourselves off from a lot of observations that uh, are important to advance uh, science and our understanding of the universe. Right. Th- it's thousands, by the way. The ultimate goal of, of Starlink would be thousands of satellites. And again, you know, bringing the internet and connectivity to the world is, a, is, is great, but what's the cost? And, I, you know, Gwyn Shotwell, who's the president of SpaceX, made a statement about this and said that they were looking at, um, you know, how they were there. The goal was not to have them be shiny and visible, um, to have them be positioned in a way where they're not super reflective at dawn and dusk, that they're, you know, that they that they want to work with astronomers. It does feel I, so. I like that they're responsive, but it does also feel like they really weren't considering it in advance. Yeah, maybe not, or didn't think it would be such an issue. You know, maybe they yeah. they, they were surprised by that early imagery, or maybe maybe they were all thinking about the final location of them mm-hmm. and not the fact that when they launch, it was going to be a whole big chain of bright, shiny satellites that was visible from the ground, which is what happened. And it was apparently quite a sight. And maybe, you know, in the end, it's not as big a deal. Um, but there's the larger issue, which is there's really nothing stopping anybody from saying, I'm going to launch a few thousand satellites or basically like if you wanted to carve your name in the moon with a laser, there's nobody to really stop you mm-hmm. because it's international waters, essentially, right? That's that joke from the Martian that, you know, he's a space pirate because he's in international waters. Like the regulations other than, other than the, the, the one space treaty, which nations could just back out of at right. any point, <laughs> right? like there's no real ownership or agreement or law and so it's individual laws. And even if a country has individual laws, you could go to a different country. And, you know, there's no up there, as the Russians taught us when they launched Sputnik. It's not like Sputnik only went around Russia, right? It went around the whole Earth because that's how it works. nobody owns <laughs> that space up there. And so it's I think that's kind of fascinating. And I, I wonder if this is going to be a, a trend in 21st century law and international relations about um, how we figure out ways of approaching putting things into space that have impact on Earth. Yeah. I think this is a story to keep a close eye on. I don't think the IAU is just going to give up on this. I think they will continue to work to uh, to manage this because it's only going to get more complex. Right. And the light from cities is already such a big problem for not only people admi- admiring the night sky, but for astronomers who have to go into very dark locations. Very remote, yeah. far off locations. So imagine you go out to the Atacama Desert and you're out there and then there's like all these little shiny Starlink satellites flying yeah. overhead. It's like super frustrating. And, mm-hmm. and you know, Musk shot off a tweet where he said, well, we got to do observations in space anyway, but anybody who's paying attention knows just how expensive space telescopes no, are. I mean, James and there aren't Webb, that many. James Webb is fine. Yeah, we'll sure. We going. only need the one telescope. In fact, there's a story later about how, you know, it's hard to get time on Hubble. Like we, we aren't, we are not at the point. Sure. It's admirable to say what we really need is to put big telescopes in Lagrange points and on the far side of the moon and all of that. That's great. But what about astronomy for the next hundred years before we get there? Yep. Uh, let's shift gears a little bit. I want to talk about the supercomputer that has been hanging out on the International Space Station. It was it a Mac Pro? It was not a Mac Pro. Uh, but for the last 18 months or so, uh, Hewlett-Packard Enterprise, uh, HPE, has had an experimental supercomputer. like the size of a dorm fridge. And it's just been hanging out on the space station, just floating around. I'm sure it's bolted down. Probably not floating around. Um, and it's coming back this week, uh, early next week, I should say, on the SpaceX Dragon capsule that's due to splash down. But uh, what this is, it was called Spaceborne Computer, and it was designed to uh, address 
lot of the, the complications in sending computer and electronics hardware to space. If you think about the computer on something like the, uh, the Juno orbiter at Jupiter, or even like the Mars rovers, those computers have to be extremely hardened against things like radiation, uh, things like severe temperature swings, because those can really damage fragile electronics. So Spaceborne Computer, this project, was designed to use software to help mitigate some of that damage. So if the computer was in a situation where it thought, hey, you know, there's a radiation spike or there's a solar flare, if it had that, that data, it would choose to shut itself down or to shut down, you know, critical components to protect them during one of those events. So it was managing power, temperature, voltage, and basically if anything out of, out of normal bounds occurred, it would take precautions upon itself to keep itself safe. Again, using software on the computer, not not just you know lead lined hardware. <laughs> yeah, that, that's the cool thing about this project is can we take something that's more or less a stock computer right. rather than a hardened piece of hardware and intelligently operate it so that it stays operational yeah. in space, it's which a, is very clever. It's very a very smart. different way of thinking about it, and uh, it seems like they are very encouraged by the machines on orbit performance it's done very well they're going to take it apart when they get it back here on earth to see uh how the internal components actually fared if there's, if there's any damage you know it could be down to like the very trace level and some of these boards that'll be a, a complicated process to sort through but yeah you're right that exactly the hope is that you could fly something more like consumer or professional hardware without having to go through all of the you know the years-long processes to make it Harden. And this is going to be a big deal looking at the Artemis program. Yeah. You know, if you're going to have something in cislunar space or on the trip to Mars, you can't have it get fried halfway through. And so my guess is that we would be in a, in a world where it's a combination of hardware protection and the software programs running to make everything more robust. Um, and sort of this was like the perfect intersection for me as like a computer guy and a space guy. Yeah, I love like, these stories. Like space-born computer, thumbs up from the Liftoff yeah, podcast. because so many of the space computer stuff is it's just like two, three, four, five generations old because right. the hardened version takes – you know, they take a chip and then they make the hardened version. And at that point, it's already five years out of date right? and super slow. And so the supercomputer idea that you've got so much more computing power, if you think about making a lunar base or something like that, you can't. So I watched I rewatched The Martian okay. not too long ago. And one of the things that struck me is like everybody's got their laptops and and they've got a whole, you know, video system and a computer system. And yeah. the world we live in now, you're going to you're going to want a computer infrastructure, you're going to want a network, you're going to want a bunch of network devices, you're going to want all of this stuff and a lot of computing power if you make a moon base. Well, if you have to have that all be hardened space tech, it's going to cost a fortune, it's going to be kind of bad. And so this is uh, this is cool, the idea that you could use um, stuff that was a little more stock but with some special parameters to make it run more carefully in space. Yeah, and if you think about, again, Mars... Or, or even the moon, and say you're in a situation where the delay in communication back to Earth, that, that delay is critical to some operation or, or you know, God forbid, some sort of life-threatening situation, you want your hardware to be able to be more powerful on its own. And, right. you, and you're not waiting for something that is super slow or even has to communicate with, with us here on Earth. So a lot of possibilities here. Uh, if this pans out. So I, I believe um, HPE is going to be sharing their their findings later this year. And I think that'll be fun to look forward to. What What are the odds that of them having made a cheesy video involving Space the Final Frontier, these are the voyages of the HP Enterprise? Oh, 100%. Okay. If, if they can you. get the rights to, to use that name, that's definitely happening. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, that's why wouldn't enough. you, really? Yeah. But I agree. I uh, You know, space computers, that is my jam. I love yeah. it. <laughs> right up our alley. Uh, we got a lot more to talk about, but let me tell you about our first sponsor. This episode of Liftoff is brought to you by KiwiCo. If you have kids, and uh, they're probably out, out for summer break now, uh, and uh, you know, you're know you looking for stuff to do, and you know how great it is when you find something for them to do that's educational and fun. But coming up with ideas, planning projects, that stuff takes a lot of time. And if you're a parent, you're already probably pretty busy. Individually researching creative projects, finding ways for them to be educational and fun, just sadly isn't practical, but we still want our kids to have fun and creative stuff to do. And so that's where KiwiCo comes in. 
They have a selection of hands-on projects for kids of all ages. So here's how it works. You sign up for a KiwiCo subscription, and every month you receive a crate full of exciting projects. And the crates come with everything you need. You're not unpacking the box and running off to the craft store. It's all there, ready to go. They have hundreds of hands-on projects available covering science, technology, engineering, art, and math. So you know your kids are learning while they get creative. And it doesn't matter how old your kids are. They have crates for all ages, and you can pause or cancel your plan at any time. So our sons are very different ages. I have a four-year-old, and you have a 14-year-old, Jason? How old is Julian? 14. 14. So a decade apart, and KiwiCo has projects for those ages for and, sure. and everything in between. I know at our house, we did a thing about uh, water and the atmosphere, and we got to put a, a pillow together with like a rainbow. It was a lot of fun. Uh, age-appropriate craft for a four-year-old. So how, how old your kids are, they've got something uh, to check out. Change the way your kid plays with KiwiCo. Go to KiwiCo.com slash liftoff, and you'll get your first crate for free. That's K-I-W-I-C-O dot com slash liftoff. For that first crate free. Give it a try. Uh, check out that free crate and see what your kids think. Uh, one more time, that's kiwico.com slash liftoff. Our thanks to KiwiCo for their support of this show and Relay FM. All right, Jason, we're talking about space telescopes. We're talking about mm-hmm. can't look at this from the ground anymore because Elon Musk filled the sky with, with buzzing flashlights. So... One of the things that's great about infrared telescopes is that they can see all the way back in time because of uh, the uh, the redshift. They can see right past Elon Musk is what you're saying. They, they can. They right can. Using infrared, they can look right through him. <laughs> and, uh, but in order to do that, you need instruments that generally are running at low temperatures. So they use cryogenic uh, you know, freezing, basically, to keep them cool. Um, and this is one of the answers to that question of, well, why don't we just... Uh, do space telescopes is space telescopes are hard because you spend a lot of money to put up a space telescope as an infrared observatory and then you use all your coolant up and then you can't make observations anymore. All right. Can't go refill the tank because the tank is empty and it's in space and therefore you can't go there. And this is the sad state of affairs with the Spitzer space telescope, which has been up and running since 2003. Um, it is a sad story because they're shutting it down at the end of January yeah. 2020. And they had said, I think, earlier this year that they were putting this plan together. So it seems like now we just have more yeah. detail. Well, what they wanted to do was find a private organization to take it over. They, I think they, uh, the impression I get is sort of like a university or something that mm. would be feel like that was worth funding. A, and po- an- a podcast. And the answer is no. Nobody wants to take it over. It's expensive to operate it. And... Uh, so it's sad that it's going away, but if you look at the history of this telescope, it is actually one of these success stories like the Mars rovers are where a um, so often happens in space. You, you engineer it to last a certain amount of time, but you hope that you've engineered it so well it'll last a lot longer. And Spitzer was operational starting in 2003. It was designed to last, last two and a half years. It actually ended up going six years before it ran out of that cryogenic coolant. So from 2003 to 2009, it was able to capture um, the infrared stuff that it was built to capture. And then even more impressively, it spent the last 10 years in what they call warm spitzer mode, (laughs) where without that coolant, they were still able to make observations. They weren't just at the wavelengths that they used to be able to make observations at. And, uh, and so they've done a lot of science on this thing since 2003. It's really a victory for everybody involved, but it has reached its end now. And while the data will last forever, um, it will be, uh, curtains for the Spitzer space telescope in January at the end of January of 2020. Um, and it, it, you know, space telescopes don't happen that often. They are expensive. They are hard to launch. We've seen this with the James Webb telescope, yeah. which is still on the horizon that they spent a lot of money for. And the, all the arguments about W first, which is on the decadal survey as something that needs to be done. And yet it's, it's delayed and expensive and space telescopes are hard. They are incredibly valuable because they can do things that we can't do beneath the atmosphere of the earth, right. but it's not something to take for granted. And when they get up there, we wring every last bit out of them. And that's what I think I'd say that Spitzer is, uh, you know, uh, a dry washcloth. Now we have wrung all the science yeah. out of it, 
and more well, over think, the last. You think even about Hubble this day that we will have this conversation about Hubble at some point. You yeah. know, we've come oh, close. I to, think about that. We've come close a couple of times with the gyroscope <sighs> issues, and you can't service it. And James Webb won't be serviceable once it's in this location. So these uh, these telescopes are are precious tools when we have them, but they don't last forever. Even if they have like Spitzer the best possible lifespan, you know, beyond what was planned, everything comes to an end. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I have seen people talk about how, um, they want to keep an eye as we go and do like the moon missions and the gateway and all that kind of thing. Uh, the idea of considering whether with, um, Orion that there's the idea of a like a service module kind of thing where Mm. you might actually be able to do some missions to these telescopes and service them which I think would be really smart because Hubble's a great example where the space uh, shuttle program saved Hubble yeah and 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 even if Hubble hadn't had its initial problems the fact is that there were so many maintenance upgrades to Hubble over the years of the space shuttle program that got us so much more than our money's worth mm-hmm. and um i think that's worth keeping in mind that not only are tel- space telescopes rare and expensive but um everybody probably should start planning now for a good way for us to service things on orbit because you know, just as SpaceX is trying to make space cheaper by using reusable rockets, um, upgradable components in space telescopes, it's a really good idea because they're very expensive and it would be a shame if you just toss them away. So, yeah, I want somebody to take a little, uh, you know, cryo can up to Spitzer. But I mean, I'm sure Spitzer wasn't designed to do that, but like sure. I would really like it if we could gain regain some of that capacity, whether it's astronauts or robots or whatever it's a it's a definitely a missing piece of our space capabilities and and uh but good job to spitzer it it did a lot of science and lasted way longer i mean it should have been done in uh like 2006 uh we also need to talk about the end of shadow launch which was the uh company formed by uh late billionaire paul allen they've got the world's largest plane it's their claim to fame and uh, it seems like uh, it is going to be winding down. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of people have already left Strata Launch. And although they haven't, uh, last I checked, made any announcements, the report from Reuters is that they're going to shut down the company. And it's an, it's a, a question about like is, if somebody picks up the assets or something like that. It's entirely possible that this is going to be like the Spruce Goose. That's what I immediately thought, which flew one time. Mm-hmm. It's an amazing bit of engineering, and yet it turns out to be impractical. Um, Strata Launch, of course, is the it's basically like two 747s kind of with a single wing. And the idea is that you strap a rocket in between the two fuselages and you can launch it into space from high up in the atmosphere, which is uh, supposed to be, you know, you don't need as much uh, propellant to get to a higher orbit. And there's lots of good things about the idea. Um, other people are trying this, uh, Virgin is trying it. Richard Branson's got a company that's trying to do stuff like this. Last year, there was a lot of discussion about whether Strata launch actually was ever going to be able to be price competitive with the new generation of smaller rockets and also efforts of companies like SpaceX to bring down the cost of launches. And as somebody who used to work for a company, owned by a billionaire Hmm. Um, and that billionaire passed away. And at that point, the priorities completely change because the billionaire can say, let's do this. And that's a great prerogative of being a billionaire. But in the case of Paul Allen here, you know, his, his sister is running the Vulcan companies now and she is not interested in putting money into strata launch like Paul was. In fact, Paul Allen, I got a little personal there. I called him Paul. I don't actually know Paul Allen, but, um, putting myself in her shoes, she, the story, the rumor is that she allowed that one launch of the aircraft, that one flight of yeah, the aircraft in, uh, April. to go off knowing that this company wasn't going to make it and that they were going to fold it because she felt like that was the least she could do to honor her brother's dream. Mm-hmm. I find that interesting because it's, you know, keeping the company alive, not not that kind of honoring of his dream, (laughs) but at least letting that thing fly after he had been so involved in building it. But this is, you know, when you've got billionaires involved, this is the, the challenge is if somebody, if they leave the scene, um, and somebody else comes in with new priorities, that could just be the end of whatever kind of largesse or, you know, corporate challenge that they're trying to do. 
Yeah, you know, there there Strata Launch is so such an interesting story because if the idea, I mean, you touched on it. They were getting going when SpaceX was getting the Falcon Nine online, and other companies now following in their footsteps with cheap rockets. And we we still haven't seen a lot of their idea of underwing launches. And there are other companies who are kind of playing in that space, but that hasn't been a super popular route for these companies to go. And I wonder if Shadow Launches made the wrong bet early on, or they thought the technology was going to be here sooner. Uh, but either way, unless someone picks it up for parts, it does seem like this is uh, it's going to wind down. There were reports earlier this year, too, of, of layoffs and things like mm-hmm. that, people leaving. So uh, the company hasn't said anything. Their partners haven't said anything. You know, the, uh, the uh, article in the show notes, uh, reporters are trying to talk to other companies about it. So there's nothing official here. But uh, my guess is, is that uh, these re- these reports are true. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's sad on one level, but yeah, you know, sometimes you make the make the wrong bet, and it sounds like a combination of the cost of building that aircraft and it taking longer and just being more expensive, with prices being driven down, and also the market changing, where there's so many players now. Oh, yeah. We talk about Rocket Lab, right? Like Rocket exactly. Lab, v- very Rock- disruptive. Yeah, because they're they're not. The, the the market for smaller launches is much larger than the market for large launches, um, or at least I don't know if it's larger, but it's growing. And that, that means that, you know, at some point there, there are not so many large launches and you see the companies with large lift capacity. If they're not competing with NASA for contracts, the other thing they're doing is extolling the virtues of launching 40 satellites at once right. and things like that, because, you know, you, you can – satellites can be really small now yeah. so you don't necessarily need the, the there's the whole like complexion of the profile of everything we put into space every year and the average weight and the number and those those are changing yeah. along with the price so it's i you know it would it's a tough business to be in and if you're then forecasting out five or ten years unless you've got a really sweet sort of government assignment where it's like, we're going to do it regardless. If you're a commercial entity, it can be really tough. And I think that's probably what happened with Strata Launch. You want to tell us about Joanne Morgan, this wonderful uh, Vanity Fair piece? Well, I had, I had you read it today. Uh, I, I read this last week. Uh, it's a really great piece, and it comes out of the excellent Apollo 11 documentary, which I guess in the last month, so we haven't mentioned it, is now available in digital form for you to rent or buy and watch at home. It won't be the IMAX experience, yeah, but... Boy, I'm glad I saw it in IMAX. I am too, but you know, you should see it regardless. Uh, you just sit really close to your home TV. Yeah, and turn up the volume really, really high. Loud. It's basically the same thing. Uh, It's a great documentary. Uh, If you don't remember, this is using existing, uh, mostly not seen before Mm -hmm. or not seen in decades, film footage. There's also audio. They went through all the like loop audio from Mission Control and cleaned it up and isolated it. And that's the story. There's no narration. There's no talking heads from later telling you what they were feeling at the time. It is as it's the sounds as it happened. The only thing you get close to narration is some interviews with the astronauts before the launch, but there's nothing post the launch reflecting back. You don't have Tom Hanks walking through a green screen of, uh, Roman columns or whatever, like in, uh, in from, from the, the earth, earth to the, the moon. moon. Yeah. <laughs> putting it all in perspective. No, That's right. it, it's all this, uh, the, the details. So, um, Great article and or I mean about a, a great piece in that wonderful documentary, which is um, there's a woman in mission control and she's focused on at several points in the documentary. And it's so striking because most of the rooms in Apollo 11 are full of men. Mm-hmm. And then you see this woman in the control room and this writer basically said, who is she? <laughs> right. And set about figuring it out. And the answer is her name is Joanne Morgan. She was 28. She was an instrumentation controller. And she was the first woman allowed to be inside the firing room during an Apollo launch. There are some other women in the- some of the photography, but they were... Um, there, there's a famous photo, but the, some backroom staff members were allowed in after. Mm-hmm. But when they were in there with doors locked and all of that, she was the one who was there. And there was a whole, the story goes into it like 
there was a whole thing. It, it wasn't like a controversy, but like her boss basically had to go to um, the flight director mm-hmm. and say, I want to have her in the room. Right. And the answer was, and they were like, she's, she's great. We need her there. She's, yeah. and, and, and this would be a more dramatic story if the flight director had been like, I don't want any women in my control room. Right. But he was like, great. Like yeah. l- literally like, yeah, if she's the best, she's the best. She needs to be there. Um, but it did mean that she was um, the only woman in that room. Yeah. And she went on to have a uh, a very long NASA career. She was she was part of several Apollo missions, 8, 9, 10, 11, uh, 12, and 13. And she worked on the um, the launch side of things. So in the firing room. So she, in this in this interview, she, you know, she's like, well, I went home and watched the lunar landing like everybody else. You know, my, my part of it was over. Right, because she was in the, the firing room, basically. It's the launch right. the launch yeah. group. Once it's cleared uh, the tower, she's it, done. It gets handed over to Houston, and then, right. and then that's over. Um, Great yeah. moment in this interview, too, about the hidden that hidden figures moment where mm-hmm. the character in Hidden Figures has to run, like, across the campus and into another building in order to use the women's bathroom because there's only a men's bathroom in, uh, where she's working. Um that was absolutely true of Joanne Morgan as well. She she uh, had to go to another. She says it's just like Hidden Figures. Yeah. I had to find another building in order to use the bathroom. And then at some point, I think I think what I read is at some point um, they changed that. And I believe I believe uh, in some of these older buildings today. What um, I think maybe they're marked as unisex now, but they're certainly understood to be unisex. And uh, that was that was a, a change that happened is um, never underestimate the cheapness of the federal government <laughs> where they're <laughs> yeah. like, we could build a new bathroom. But what yeah. what if we just say this bathroom's for everyone yep. and we leave it that way? So that's yep. uh, I think that's what they do now. Yep. And she went on to uh, stay at NASA. She retired in 2003. So a very long run at the agency. And uh, I would definitely encourage everybody to go read this interview. It's uh, it's really great. Yeah, I, I was glad to find it. It's a really nice uh, mm-hmm. Vanity Fair uh, profile or a little uh, little interview of who is she. So now when you go watch that, watch for uh, Joanne Morgan. Sometimes we lose things. I've lost something, Stephen. Did you lose your keys? Uh, no, your... I, lost, I lost an exomoon. A whole exomoon? Yeah. Did you check, uh, did you check your pockets? It's, it's usually the last place you look. The... Um, Another uh, sort of story I read that I want to call people's attention to that was really good is uh, it's an Atlantic story um, that is about this exomoon that was discovered. I think we talked about it on we, the show. We did talk about it. And this is a great story. It's called The Moon That Got Away. And, <laughs> and it is it is a great story about um, science at work that I really like, like how science works and people who don't understand science talk a lot about like aha you scientists who just believe you believe in science and uh you know you don't but the whole point of science is doubt and questioning and verifying and and reproducing or invalidating results and this is a good example where um somebody found something really interesting they thought it was a moon going around an exoplanet because within the typical way we find an exoplanet which is like a dip in the light of a star right. there was a dip within the dip which is right. like what is that and they thought du- double lensing all the way yeah that's right it's a <laughs> it's a triple exo so uh they this paper basically said we think that this is a a very large planet with a very large moon mm-hmm. and that's why that lensing uh, or the uh the uh the eclipsing changes and uh they they had a kepler uh kepler uh observation they had a hubble observation um and it's very exciting but when other and they passed out all their data because it's science and said, you know, validate this or invalidate this. And the problem is that other researchers have tried to verify it and have a hard time because it's really noisy data. They think they see something, then they think maybe they don't see something. There are all these issues with the instrumentation. There's issues with Hubble. Um, it's hard to get time on Hubble. Um, and then Hubble has its own issues in terms of introducing noise into the equation. Uh, same things happen with ground-based telescopes. And it's just it's a really good article where basically – it could be real. Uh, nobody can really sort of prove that it is or isn't. And so it's worth remembering whenever we're talking about cutting edge science that it's the press release is 
not the first shot fired because the first shot right. fired, there's a whole process of verifying internally and externally, especially if a paper is published in a, in a, in a journal, mm-hmm. you know, there's peer review, but the conversation can continue. And, uh, the way this article ends is the guy who discovered it says <laughs> the like good this. news is the moon's not going anywhere if right. it's there. Right. So we can keep looking for it. Um, and it's hard to get Hubble time because space telescopes are not that many of them and it's hard to get time on them. But they're mm-hmm. also ground-based telescopes and they're going to keep looking and seeing. And I'm sure they will find an exomoon eventually. And it and they may verify that this is truly an exomoon. But it's a... Uh, it's amazing what we can do and that we've seen all these exoplanets. That was a thing that was just a dream back in the nineties. But now, you know, we are dealing with such fine instrumentation and we're looking for a little bit of signal in the noise. And sometimes it can be um, a little harder to verify what we're seeing is real. So I thought it was a good, it, it is definitely not the kind of expose, a salacious story you might think could come out of something like this. It really is like, oh, this is how science works. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's kind of messy sometimes, and you don't always get a result that you're happy with, and you don't always get a final answer. It's sort of like, well, we'll keep looking. We'll keep trying to figure it out. Yeah, these things can be a moving target, and and as the technology gets better, it'll get answered one way or the other. I don't know why they can't just find out if a moon orbiting a planet around a star that's many hundreds of light years away is there or not. <laughs> I mean, that seems very simple. Wow. Come on, science, get it together. This episode is also brought to you by Eero. The folks at Eero built the Wi-Fi they wish they had in their homes, a fast, reliable connection in every room and even, and this is important if you're Jason, the backyard. It's true. I need. I have a camera back there, and it needs Wi-Fi. Exactly. We all have these devices, and Eero is prepared to supply all of them. It's nice, speedy. How do I write access. my articles in the summer, sitting in the backyard in my little camp chair with my iPad on my lap? If there's no Wi-Fi back there, Stephen, it would be terrible. You can't do it. So let me tell you how you get started. You start with the second gen Eero device. It has three five gigahertz radios for increased speed and range, and it sits flat on any surface. You connect it with Ethernet cable or wirelessly, and then you go out and you expand the coverage in your home by adding in some Eero beacons. They plug into the wall, allowing you to reach every corner of your home. And the Eero app helps you place them. So you put it where you think it needs it, and the Eero app says, hey, that's great, or you need to move it somewhere else. It's helping you the whole time. Yeah, I don't need to start with it. I already did it. It works great. So, you know. It's great. Uh, the single router model, just it doesn't work anymore. Wi-Fi just doesn't go through walls very well. We have a lot more systems, yeah. uh, a lot more uh, devices than ever. And with Eero, you can install enterprise, enterprise-grade Wi-Fi in your home in just a few minutes. And I'll also point out that they look nice, too. They do look nice. They do not look like a... Like a utility from Batman's closet. (laughs) And with that app, you can manage it all in the palm of your hand. You can see how many devices are connected, the speed of your internet, and uh, it all updates automatically. So you have the latest features and the latest security at all times. So we both have ear in our homes. My experience is the same as yours. They look great. They work even better. And uh, I have no Wi-Fi dead spots anymore in my house or my yard, thanks to Eero. Yep. For free overnight shipping, visit Eero.com, and at checkout, select Overnight Shipping, and then enter the code LIFTOFF to make it free. That's Eero.com, free overnight shipping with the code LIFTOFF. Our thanks to Eero for their support of this show and Relay FM. Space launch system segment explaining geopolitics, <laughs> mechanical systems, engineering oh. achievements, news and trivia, SLS segment. For those listening at home, Jason basically just danced around the kitchen. Yeah, I did. That was great. It's uh, the SLS segment. So we have a progress report. Uh, NASA and its lead contractor for SLS, Boeing, have assembled four-fifths of the massive core stage. This is that big middle part of the rocket needed to launch uh, Orion uh, into, into its first mission to the moon as Artemis 1. used to be EM-1. Now Artemis 1, trying to get that drilled into my head. Yeah, that's right. Good branding. Mike Pence thanks you. It is, it is good branding. They did a good job with yeah. that. Uh, the completed core stage will include two propellant takes as well as four of the RS-25 engines back from the shuttle program. 
they're being reworked to be more powerful, uh, but the RS-25s are there at the bottom. There will be 212 feet tall, uh, and it will have twin five-segment solid rocket boosters. So one more se- segment in the shuttle program, uh, and that will get SLS and Orion into space. So this uh, this big core stage, they're working on it. They they are doing horizontal integration, so it's on its side. They're bolting things together, getting lines run, and uh, it will eventually find its way to Kennedy Space Center. Uh, other flight hardware for SLS is already there, including the vehicle stage adapter, which I saw in, um, was it last year, 2017, 2018, when we did our NASA social events at the NASA right. State of the Union uh, that was um, not in Kennedy, but now it is. So they're they're moving right, things, they moved, moving things put down it on the coast in Alabama and sending it around right. to Florida. That's right. Uh, the solid rocket boosters will be there soon as well, and um, the interim propulsion stage. So the the upper stage, you know, the, uh, the European Space Agency is working on something that's kind of delayed. Anyways, the interim stage that will give um, Orion the kind of the, the that upper stage push to get to the moon. Uh, that is already at Kennedy. The adapter for that is at Kennedy. So it feels it, like the pieces are falling into place for SLS, right? Yeah, I mean they they are making progress. There's still debate about the the test firing sequence they're going to do. Uh, that was in the news again this week. People just debating it, and um, but progress is being made. And I think sometimes with SLS, there, it's such a big project, and there's so many pieces to it um it's easy just to focus on part of it and think that's not actually moving forward and i know we like to poke fun of sls some but there are people doing a lot of work to keep it moving forward they're keeping their foot on the gas and uh this is sort of a was a milestone nasa wanted to highlight uh for for a lot of obvious reasons probably but just giving people an update of where it is so it is still moving forward and uh when that launch date comes uh you know this hardware we're talking about now will be uh Rising from a pad in Florida, so that's kind of exciting. Yeah, uh, although excitement is uh, muted a little bit by the um, government accountability office. That's kind of what they do, right? Like <laughs> that's uh, you know the the um, GEO. That's that's their job. Their job is to come in and be like pull some cool water on everybody. Yeah, well, you know, reality hurts sometimes, but that's that's that is kind of their job. And they did an analysis of major NASA projects issued a report at the end of May and uh, definitely pointed to some places where um, the projects are running behind and cost continues to escalate. Can, and I, guess can what? I guess which two projects? Um, <laughs> yes, you can. Uh, SLS uh-huh. and James Webb. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. So um, this, this uh, report had some numbers in it that we pulled out. Uh, the average schedule delay for NASA programs grew to 13 months. Uh, that's the longest since the GAO started its annual survey a decade ago. Cost has risen 27.6%. This is like a broad, broad numbers. But then we get into some specific numbers. Let's start with James Webb because we've been talking about telescopes sure. a lot. Uh, it was last delayed and, and now is scheduled to launch in March 2021. So for those keeping up at home, roll your calendar over. Mm-hmm. Uh when that was announced last year, NASA said another $800 million was going into it uh, to ha- handle problems during integration and testing. That cost is nearly double what it was going to be in 2009. <laughs> so the James Webb Telescope is uh, is basically doubled in, in cost to the American taxpayer. Why build one when you can build one at twice the price? <laughs> <laughs> Wait a second. That's not how that's supposed to work. I don't think you should open a store <laughs> no, and that, offer that sort of sale. Mm. Uh, and we'll see if the 2021 date sticks and if the budget sticks. Uh, because, uh, Especially because of James Webb, you mentioned W First. Other projects and programs have been pushed off until this is done. And Yeah, the uh, money has to come from somewhere. And the answer is it comes from other programs right. while James Webb's uh, budget continues to escalate. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then you have our friend, the SLS uh, that core stage we talked about a second ago, that's behind uh, Boeing. I think I think it's pretty clear at this point Boeing sort of underestimated what it was going to take to build this, both in time and and resources. Yeah, and uh, and that 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 schedule and that budget continues to grow. So uh, the the cost for SLS has increased uh, roughly ten percent from the twenty fourteen baseline to ten point seven billion dollars. And uh, again, the the launch. 
currently is penciled in for summer 2020. We'll see what, what happens with that. Um, NASA says that it does not want it to slip to 2021. If you're going to get to the moon at 2024, because remember, this rocket's a one-time deal. Right. You got to have more built. And to do that, you got to build and test the first one. Yeah. And and I think it's interesting that the GAO noted that, you know, that June 2020, they think is, you know, 6 to 12 months of risk. Wow. Which which is, you know, that, that fits with the NASA's really just hoping that it fits in that window of in 2020. Yeah. And doesn't slip further because you're right. Everything gets pushed back if it's if it's right. pushed back. Um, so there, I don't know if there's anything necessarily new here, but having some updated numbers always provides context for these conversations. Uh, I think clearly, especially on the telescope side, if W first is next in line, I would imagine that the agency is going to go about uh, the planning and procurement of that hardware in a very different way than what happened with James Webb because the agency cannot have another, uh, Oh, that cost we gave you 10 years ago is double and we're still not done. That can't happen again. Uh, I think NASA knows that. I think people in Congress know that. I mean, at this point, this is going forward because of the money that has been spent and the science that it promises to deliver. But I think whoever is next in line with the next space telescope is going to have a real, hard uphill battle proving that they're not going to be James Webb too. Yeah. Yeah. And that's unfortunate for whatever pro it's unfortunate for W first or whatever program is next. Yeah, exactly. There's the, the scrutiny and the rules are going to be different, but then again, they may get, uh, you know, if it leads to changes where they can be more realistic, that's important too. Or if you come in at only uh, 65, you know, 165% of cost, (laughs) then, uh, okay, you're headed in the right direction. uh, What a deal. You're only a little bit late. Yeah, uh, I wanted to wrap up talking about commercial moon landing services. Uh, yes, of course, as you do. As we do. Uh, <laughs> this is a part of the Artemis program I don't think we've touched on very much. Other than to say that you got to have a moon lander, you got to land things on the moon, and what, where was that going to come from? And the answer is there's actually been a lot of talk about this. Uh, you know, Jeff Bezos showed off his, uh, his blue moon. Mm-hmm. The, from Blue Origin, where they they're wor- working on a lunar lander, and it turns out that in the background there have been companies working on lunar lander projects, whether it's for uncrewed landers or for landers that could potentially carry a crew. Right, and um, you know this is Na- and NASA is very interested in funding continuing research into sending things to the lunar surface right. again. And the U S hasn't sent something down to the lunar surface basically since Apollo, which is interesting. They haven't even, not even, uh, uncrewed landers. So the idea is that maybe as early as next year, we will start to see the fruits of NASA's funding of these companies to, um, learn how to deliver to mm-hmm. lo- the lunar surface. Yeah. After Apollo, the, the lander, all the lander action went to Mars. And the focus, yeah. the focus turned. And so these are three companies, um, Astro Robotic in Pittsburgh, uh, Intuitive Machines of, of Houston, Texas, and then Orbit Beyond, based out of New Jersey. They've been given money, it varies between 77 and $97 million to build commercial uncrewed landers. So these would take science payloads, uh, eventually maybe resource payloads. Yeah, so exactly. I, think, I think there's an idea here that if, if we go way into the future and think about the lunar base, this the seeds of this program today could could become something like the commercial resupply program for the International Space Station. Right. Where these companies fly uncrewed um, to the moon, drop these landers, you know, but on the back patio of mm-hmm. the lunar lander. Like the Amazon drone, you know, yeah, same exactly. idea. You drop it down and, and you've got your resupply mission. And this is the very early stages of this. And I think out of this, you know, these companies are not building crewed landers. These companies aren't going to be the one. Uh, to build the the Artemis lander for the the first woman on the moon, but what they learn will trickle up to the, those bigger programs. And like you've said, this is not something that America has done in fifty years, and something where other countries have have been doing this. We've been doing it at Mars, but bringing all the tech back to the moon, and uh, a very aggressive timeline. They say they want something uh, on the surface of the moon in twenty twenty, early twenty twenty one. That's soon, and uh, I, like you said, this money is to is to continue these what these companies are already doing, and uh, 
and they've proposed, you know, multiple payloads. Um, you know, one company says 14, one says five, one says four, but moving forward aggressively because that's what's required if you're going to hit that date. Yeah. So there's a lot of action going on in uncrewed commercial to the moon uh, because the, you know, U.S. wants to get back in that game and build knowledge there. And then obviously in parallel, they are talking about how do you get a lunar lander for a crewed mission by 2024 and uh, and then beyond, because the idea here is ultimately that the 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 way that Artemis is pitched versus the way that Apollo was pitched, Apollo was let's go to the moon and say we did. And Artemis, the pitch is let's stay at the moon. Let's let's reengage with our capability to go there and then find a way to stay there and uh, occupy the moon and lunar orbit in a way that we've occupied Earth orbit for the last 20 years. Mm-hmm. I feel pretty caught up. Yeah, I think so. That was a month's worth of uh, stuff that was going on is the, the truth there. That's the one thing about those special episodes. And um, by the way, we've got another one of those coming up next month. We do. Mid-July, we'll be talking Apollo 11. We've, want- been, we've, been, talk- we've been together all week. We're talking about yeah, how we, how we approach how we something, a story that's been told so many times. And there's a whole great podcast that if people have not listened go listen to 13 minutes to the moon which is a bbc podcast uh really really good frustratingly good as yeah, a podcaster <laughs> right all my ideas of ways we could approach the like every episode is a different idea of how to approach apollo 11 uh so like i thought they did they are doing an entire episode about the apollo 11 computer the lem computer and i thought ah oh, that was one of my that was again space and computers i thought that could be our angle yeah, th- yeah, he's already done it. So it's a great podcast, though, listeners of this podcast. Yeah. If you haven't listened to 13 Minutes to the Moon. Very good. It's so good. So, yeah, what are we going to do? I don't know. We'll figure it out. There'll we'll be something good. We're going we're gonna to climb. We're going to go to the moon. Lunar lander and fly yeah, down. Which one of us is going to step out first? It's true. Who, who's going to push the uh, Error 1202 button? We'll see. Yeah. We'll see what happens. Okay. Until then, if you want to catch up on the stuff we talked about, head on over to the website, relay.fm slash liftoff slash 100. <gasps> Congra- congratulations again. Congratulations to you. Turns out there is stuff to talk, to talk <laughs> there about, is. about space. There is. Uh, while you're on the website, you can send us an email with feedback or follow-up. There's a link to our Tumblr blog where we post links in between episodes and uh, and links to us on Twitter. You can always find us on Twitter. The show is at Liftoff Podcast. You can find Jason there as Jay Snell, and you can find me on Twitter as ISMH. And until our next Fortnite, Jason, say goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. Adios.